Today, I'm joined by the incredible Beth Granville, who's a comedy writer and performer. In this episode, we discuss Beth's journey. We talk about some of the biggest mistakes that Beth sees within comedy acting, how you can balance the discipline of writing with the creativity, and she gives lots of advice on how you can get into writing comedy and how to make it all happen. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I learned so, so much, much from this, so I can't wait to share it with I'm you. I'm delighted to have Sit you back, on the show. For all the listeners at home, can you tell us a bit about what you get up to and the pivotal moments that have kind of led you to this part of your journey? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me on, firstly. Um, I'm excited. I'm rusty, actually. I'm rusty. I just said to you before we started recording, didn't I? I haven't done one for a while, so it's... um. It's, it's nice. This is, yeah, it's lovely to have a nice warm host as well. Um, so, yeah, thanks. I am a comedy writer and performer. I kind of took myself out of the acting game um, a couple of years ago now. Um, so I, I don't do auditions or self-tapes necessarily, but I still perform my co-host on radio. I do live comedy because that just always feels important for my joy and uh keeping sharp you know you can write comedy as much as you want but it's really feeling what lands on stage so I I do that sort of for fun with my sketch partner Garner Davis um yeah and then mostly just write and I've really got into teaching comedy writing and comedy acting the last couple of years as well I've always kind of taught in various forms I've taught drama a lot um but I think finding my own way to write through writing lots of series and episodes and writing on other people's shows and script consulting, I found a way to teach, um, which is essentially the way I wish I'd learnt to write comedy. Um, so, yeah, I'm getting a lot of joy from teaching in drama schools and for I Am Pro, which is where we know each other from. Um, yeah, I find it's quite an inaccessible industry in general really um so I like to use my kind of 10-15 years experience um to just educate people not only on you know like rules of writing and how we create stuff and stories but also what to do with it when you have it and how to navigate the industry because I you know talking of how the pivotal moments um that led me to where I am it was just, you know, the opposite of linear, really. Um, I just had no idea how the industry worked. I always did Amdram and performing for family, you know, the, the old, like everybody does. Uh, that's how we all start, I think. Um, but, you know, I didn't know what the Edinburgh Festival was. I didn't even know that people wrote comedy for a job, really, which growing up on a diet of almost exclusively comedy, it sounds like a silly thing to say. But I think when you're talking about jobs, if you go to a state school, you're from a working class background where nobody's in the industry, you're not in London. So you don't have that access to, um, you know, lots of different theatres and, and things. Um, I just didn't have a clue how any of it worked. And so... I started doing comedy sketches um, when somebody had done the Edinburgh Festival and said, oh, you're funny, you should be doing comedy. And I'd done a drama degree, and then I was just working as a play worker. 
And he said, oh, I bet you've written stuff. And I was like, yeah, I have, but just for my own fun, I'd just write, you know, just write comedy, write sketches and little character bits. Um, so in this hall in Barry in South Wales, um, me and my friend who I roped into it, who's an actor, Francois Pandolfo, uh, I got him to do some comedy sketches with me uh, and they went down really well and people loved them and I was like oh this feels good saying stuff on stage and loads of people laughing it's terrifying but it was great so it was lucky to have that one-off first gig that went well because if it hadn't who know I might never have done it again um so yeah after doing that for a bit um Ruth Jones had started a production company Tidy Productions and so we sort of heard on the grapevine she was looking for comedy talent and specifically women, actually, which was really nice to hear. Uh, so Fran's boyfriend, Ben, filmed us on an old camcorder and uh, we put them on, put our sketches on DVD and just sent them to Ruth Jones. Um, and she got me in. I did some stuff with her. She was great. She was really warm, really encouraging. She was like, you're really funny. So she asked me to audition for Gavin and Stacey. And it was series three and it was already kind of written, but she had these parts in mind. And anyway, um, I ended up doing a blink and you'll miss me, but incredibly fun. And I get pictures sent regularly to me of my appearance in Gavin and Stacey. I played a character called Ange and wore the most hideous item of clothing you'll ever see in your life. Um, So that was my first professional job. And then I did Stella. Um, for Ruth Jones, which was, she sort of used, I played this beauty therapist character in some of my just character bits to camera. And she said, oh, that made me think you'd be great for this beauty therapist role. Can you bring a bit of that to this? Uh, Yeah. And then I guess another pivotal one was um, with Fran, who I'd done the comedy sketches with. We worked on a script and we'd sent it off again so blindly no idea how the industry worked we sat there having a conversation saying um oh should we you know should we let channel four make this or should we let the bbc i think it's quite channel four <laughs> like as if anyone was ever going to make it because we had no no previous writing commissions just so naive printed all these scripts off spent a fortune sent them all off we had some nice letters back but obviously nothing from it and Fran had been in Doctor Who and so he sent it to Russell T Davis to sort of see what he thought um and he loved it he got back like six months later and he was like this is brilliant I've put us in touch with someone at BBC um and we got a development of it there it didn't get the green light in the end um and so and then one of the people we worked with said oh you know anything else you write obviously come to us I was like I'm never writing again (laughs) this has been a year and I've been paid a thousand pounds over the course of a year uh so yeah um I sort of just that was like a a sight insight into how hard it is but actually even the thought that we got paid a thousand pounds to develop it now is really incredible actually um and so rare um and we learned lots and then um just yeah I wrote a short play um for Dirty Protest Theatre which again got such a great response it was five writers writing 20 minute site specific pieces and I had I wrote one set in a hair salon and it got such a good reception and people kept bringing it up you know like a year down the line people like oh you doing anything with that hairdresser thing it was so funny and yeah and then I did a writing course 
and you had to sort of give samples of your writing because we got a mentor, um, which mine was Chris Douglas, who writes Ed Reardon on Radio 4. He's a brilliant writer, really lovely man. And he read Foiled, which was the hair salon one, and he was like, this is brilliant. You have to do something with this. He said, the characters just come off the page. It's a great world. It's really... Um, and it was sort of just writing what I knew because I'd um, spent so much time in hairdressers. I'm not a natural blonde, although I was when I was younger, but really dark hair and really wanted to be blonde. So you just spent hours, especially having to get cheap deals for highlights, doing Groupons and going to a, you know different hair salons all the time and just spending. So I've got a lot of hair and it's very dark. So I'd spent five hours in the hairdressers and just the material was just endless. I loved it. Uh, so yeah, ended up sort of getting some characters from, from that world. Um, and then Foiled became another couple of years down the line. Again, everything's so long, uh, but I wrote it. Um, I invited David Charles, who was a friend of mine. We'd written together, asked him to co-write it with me. Um, and he'd never been in a hair salon. So he was like, I don't know if I'm the right person. I was like, no, you're funny and you're good at story. And yeah, that's all you need. And just go and sit in hair salons for a bit. Uh, so yeah, that that was a massive pivotal moment. It was sort of all in. I, it was self-funded, um, still paying off the loan. Uh, but I just thought, I, I want to do something with this. And it's so hard to get given opportunities. And I'm never somebody to sit around and wait for something to happen. It's like... If the door closes, kick the window in, you know, um, is still my ethos. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, invested a lot of money, bank loan, worked five different jobs, seven days a week to pay to take this show up to Edinburgh because I wanted to pay the people in it. Obviously, I didn't pay myself. Um, invested in a bit of PR and just thought, do you know what, I'm going to give this a go. And if this goes for nothing, it goes for nothing, I'm out, I'll do something else. Um, but, yeah, fortunately, the work went in and it, it got... Yeah, um, the stage gave it like critics pick of the fringe and five stars and the perfect comedy, which really elevates. We all like to not care about reviews, but they do help. Um, and we'd had a couple of not great ones. A reviewer um, who I will name, um, Steve Bennett, he came to see it in previews and uh, he works for Chortle and he's really like quite highly regarded comedy review people do respect his opinion you know so it's quite high stakes for me him coming and he released his review midway through the fringe with a review that basically um two and a half stars and everything he slagged off in the play was gone by the time he saw it in previews so he saw it at an hour and 20 and you use the previews obviously to find what's working and trim bits and so it was an hour by the time it got to Edinburgh and actually all the stuff he'd said was sort of gone and changed and so midway through Edinburgh and it was like the first review we got was that two and a half stars slagging off it and I was like <sighs> like I couldn't breathe it was just and you're going out to the bars in Edinburgh and you're like oh my god everybody's read that review everybody knows it was really dark I was sat eating a veggie haggis in mum's cafe in Edinburgh and I was like what have I done what have I done um and we asked him to to say that it was seen in previews because people can't read that and think the show is an hour and 20 just in a basic you know and he refused to change it um so it was really dark and then we got the stage review the scotsman kate copstick raved about it and it just all changed you know and it is always worth remembering those things 
things can change and no one person's opinion is you know if you've put the work in you've made something that is the best you can make and you've been authentic to yourself and you've been rigorous and you've you know you've just got to trust collaborate with the right people um so yeah it turned into a bbc radio series from that and yeah so i, I suppose they were the big moments that were pivotal things that changed me, you know, gave me that validation when I needed it, gave me that bit of a boost when I desperately needed it because there's so much rejection constantly, so many knockbacks constantly still, you know, which it never stops, you know, even people really high levels. We were talking about Sarah Lancashire the other day who, uh, you know, auditioned post Happy Valley as well for this thing in LA and she went out and they didn't want her. And then it was like, oh, no, we might want you, actually. And she's waiting in this hotel room. They're like, can you stay another day? Because we haven't decided. And then she, all these back and forths. And the thought of Sarah Lancashire doing a self-tape, you know, it's it never ends. And so you have to sort of find joy, make peace, accept the reward and the validation when it comes and find joy in what you're making and keep making yourself better because... Um, and those pivotal moments will keep happening, you know. You've never got there. You've never arrived. So. But yeah, they they were my sort of early ones. That's brilliant. And your journey has been incredible to listen to. I love that you're so open and honest about everything you face. And my favourite thing ever is you saying, if a door closes, kick the window in. (laughs) That's my new favourite saying. I'm going to use that all the time. I mean, I did go to school in Barry, so it's like I learned something there, you know. (laughs) But I didn't didn't learn anything in lessons, but... uh, yeah maybe learn a bit more about kicking windows in um yeah and I think it's just really it's so important to be honest like it's so important because not enough people are and I get it like everybody wants to keep up this facade you know and because it's outwardly you know a glamorous industry in a lot of respects and you do get those exciting um experiences which are really fun and um but it's really hard and the pay isn't good most of the time and people need to be more honest and talk about it more because I just think it helps everybody coming up to just feel better about their experiences. Absolutely and it is still hard even when you've got a certain level of success like you literally were on Gavin Stacey, you went on Stella, you had all these things commissioned and people raving about your work and still projects were getting knocked back and the reviews weren't brilliant and it's it's constant it's constant (laughs) yeah it is and like even when you think you've made it like you say there's always somewhere to go you're never like just finished Mm. yeah exactly it's lucky the retirement age is so high anyway because you know I'm just when do you retire (laughs) (laughs) Literally, when people ask me, am I too young to, like, get into acting? I'm like, how old are you? And they're, like, 18. I'm like, guys, <laughs> we're not retiring till we're well in our 90s. Like, oh, retire. my God, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with being a comedy writer, I'm assuming there's a lot of misconceptions about what you do, especially, like, day-to-day life. So can you explain what some of those misconceptions are and what the reality actually is? Um. Yeah, I think the biggest one is is about money. Um, so it's quite astonishing, really. People are never 
not amazed when I tell them some of the figures, you know, that you get for some of the jobs that you do. Um, I remember when I was a couple of series into Foiled, so it was a radio series on BBC, and Ralph Little was in it, and Derek Jacobi, and Felicity Montague, and incredible people in it. Miles Jerp, and it was it was fabulous. Kyle Smith Bino, who's in loads of stuff now, um, who I'd known from again years ago. Doing he had an improv troupe, Battle Acts, and I did some stuff with them years ago. So it's building those connections as you come up. You know, we'll, I'm sure we'll go on to this later, but supporting people's work, keeping those connections and, you know, with people you think are good and you like and you get on with. Um, but when I, I was a couple of series in and we were doing live recordings in Wales, because it's set in Wales, um, and, you know, I bumped into a few people from school. Obviously, I'm from Wales and I'm from quite a small place and you bump into people and they're like, oh, you, you're absolutely smashing it. Oh my God, it's so incredible everything you're doing because obviously people see Instagram and things. And um, we were recording in St. David's Hall and they're like, it's amazing. Have you like bought a house up in London now? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> like this is, I earned more money when I was a waiter at Las Iguanas in Cardiff than recording my own series in Cardiff. Like it's, and and this is a problem across the board, you know, it's um, the whole of society, you know, nurses aren't being paid properly. It's it's 13 years of a Tory government and austerity. So we're all suffering through it. And obviously the cost of living crisis has ramped everything up. But wages for a lot of the teaching work, the writing work, they just haven't gone up. You know, I'm doing, I say I go in a writer's room now. My first writer's room was, oh my God, what year was it? 2012, I think I did my first ever writer's room. The fees barely changed to now um bbc rates you know a show i just worked on just yeah it's you can you can write a fair amount of pages have a couple of writers rooms and redraft and redraft and have a reading meeting and walk away with 500 quid and you know, when you're renting bills is whatever it's, it's, it's really, and, and those opportunities, they, kept, they come along. It's really exciting. I never thought it's fascinating to me, the things that I've done and the things I've worked on and the people I've written for. And you, if I'd imagined the financial position I would be in, I, you just, you wouldn't believe it. And so those jobs did used to pay a lot better as well. And so if I had my career in the 90s, I probably would own a house in London now. But everything's got so out of reach and wages haven't gone up. So I think that's the biggest one. People often say to me, oh, my God, you're absolutely killing it. And I'm like, I wish I was. I am. But just financially, it's things don't pay anywhere near as much as you would think they would. Um, and actors and writers across the board are getting so much worse deals than they ever have. And hence, obviously, the strikes in America and... Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy time to be doing what we're doing, that insecurity of freelance work anyway, but in a creative industry. And I think that it used to be as well that those other jobs that you do, those side hustles or those, they would be paying you enough to live relatively comfortably and they just don't anymore. You know, minimum wage hasn't gone up. So, um, yeah, I think... I mean, I, I'm all right. Do you know, I'm not at a food bank. I'm not being poor me. I'm, I'm not. But I think that's probably the biggest misconception is that people see you on telly. They see you've written something. They'll hear you on the radio and they think you would be doing. And they rightly so. You should be doing better. Um, and I think lots of people ask me questions about how do you write a joke? You know, that's 
it's not necessarily a misconception, but people don't always know exactly how it works, which, again, I get. It's a hard thing to get your head around to just... And, and you know, in the past, I have found, been in rooms where they go, write me a joke on this, and that's an incredible amount of pressure, and sometimes you just can't. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think, again, not so much a misconception, but I think there's a lot of mystery surrounding it as a, a job in itself, writing comedy. Like, how would you sit down and begin to even do that? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I obviously, after your amazing comedy sessions... I tried to give a give a go at a couple of sketches and I did some for about a week, like pretty back to back. Um, and I'm still doing them because I do really enjoy them actually. You've given me so much confidence to do them, whereas I'd have feared doing anything like it before. But it was really funny because I put them out and then I met up with some new actors the following weekend and someone had only only seen my sketches and they were like, oh, you're the girl that does the sketches. Say something funny. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah, I imagine that happens to you all the time. Yeah, it's exhausting. Oh, be funny, don't say something funny. Um, no way to get somebody to not be funny. No better way to ensure somebody's not funny than saying, make me laugh. Um, your sketches are brilliant. I think you're a fabulous comedy actress and writer yeah you your observations and your character works really good they're really funny so yeah I'm really glad if I was any part of you know in getting you there to actually put that out there it's such a great great showcase for you as well you know that that calling card people go there that they can see what you're doing and it's you know people have respect for it as well that you're you're not waiting for someone to give you a job you're creating characters you're writing you're making work you're performing for for the joy of it and for the sheer sake of getting better and and being vulnerable and putting your work out there and I think that's really admirable I think when I was younger I you know I do often think oh I wonder what all those sketches all of those character things I did to camera it probably would have been Instagram and TikTok if I was you know if that was available to me when I was that age and do it and send my DVDs to Ruth Jones, would I have? I don't know. Um, might have been too self-conscious. I'm still a very self-conscious performer now. So, yeah, I, I've got a lot of admiration for it. So, yeah, well done. They're great. And anyone listening who hasn't checked them out, which I'm sure they have, they should. Thank you so much. That means so much, honestly, from you because you are incredible and your sketches and your writing is just phenomenal. And I'm a huge admirer admirer of your work and that really does mean a lot so thank you <laughs> oh pleasure thanks likewise now you are a queen of comedy like when I was taking class with you you know every inch of comedy <laughs> in my mind like I learned so much and so much obviously I was so scared before of doing comedy acting and through your lessons I kind of learned how to navigate it. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you see actors make when they're attempting comedy acting? Um, so probably one frustrating mistake I think actors make is they haven't read around the context of the lines they're saying. And so they haven't tuned into what the joke is they haven't been detailed and rigorous enough with understanding the world the context the characters people's responses to them 
um, they're just sort of focusing on their lines so much and what they're saying when you learn way more about that your character you're playing from what the other characters are saying and doing and the world that they're in. So I think quite often I'd be really frustrated listening to actors reading um, the scripts sometimes that we've done where I'm like, oh, you haven't read it. You haven't got, you haven't sold that properly because you haven't read the scene before that you're not in. And that's really annoying. So it's like read around it, do the work and like, please try and understand um everything about what's happening in this scene it's all there and ask questions you know like please ask uh, ask the writers writers are always prepared to explain their jokes and you know tell you why something might be funny um so yeah especially if you think something might be a joke but you don't get it like always ask never try and wing it um and then the other big one is just not playing the truth, um, which obviously we talked a lot about in sessions. People, um, and, you know, I've done work at Italia Conti in Arts Ed, and the biggest thing lots of them said was they don't know how to deliver a joke for a laugh. And I'm like, you just don't do that. And I said, oh, you're a certain type of comedian that delivers, you know, punchlines, you know, Tommy Cooper. But um you need to find out what the character's objectives are, what their truth is, what they want. A character always wants something. What do they want? What's the subtext? So what are they saying? What's the subtext? And once you like tune into and understand the character's objective and what their truth is, you just play that earnestly. You play the truth of it. You don't play for laughs. You're not thinking it's not a joke to them. You know, I always use this country because it's just, it's so brilliant for it. They are playing like frustration and like boredom and you know there's there's the, the reality of their situation is so bleak you know like Kerry with the stuff with her dad and it's just awful it's heartbreaking and she's playing the truth of that she's not selling jokes they have moments between them where they make each other laugh and they'll have a bit of a joke but really the really funny bits are when they're terrified or when they're really annoyed or and so unless you commit to how terrified that character is or how annoyed they are no one's going to believe it and no one's going to laugh we laugh because of the the recognition and you know the truth of it that's what makes us laugh because life is funny dark stuff is funny so i think people are thinking too much about playing the comedy and um it's like, no, it's play the truth. So I'd say they're the two biggest mistakes people make. I love that. And that is something that stuck with me in anything I watch now, whether it's The Office, whether it's Friends, like even sitcoms, like they are just playing the truth. And I think it's just when I watch shows like that and great comedies, I I realise that now, obviously when when you're sitting there watching it sometimes before before I took this class, I was definitely like thinking, oh, I can never deliver lines that way and be that funny. But when you watch them all, they're literally so in the moment of just being that character, like the joke, like you say, it's not funny to them at all. It's just the reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's high stakes for them, often about trivial matters. Um, but the, the stakes are... are you know, as high as they are in a drama, it'll just be about something like if it's this country, their pizza burning, you know, so it's not life and death, but it's treated as such because it has to mean something for that character. Um, and so that's why, you know, you've got to know your character as well as well. And I think actors need to bring so much always, um, but especially in comedy, um, you need to do so much character work 
aside from what's in the script and use the script as much as possible, but find your own uh, character within it that will help you with that, you know. And I wanted to ask, when you're writing, because this is a whole other ball game, when you're writing, how do you know what is going to be funny when an actor does it? Like, how do you know what jokes are going to land and, like, lift off the page when people actually come to breeding it? Because I imagine that's really hard. Like, some things that you've written, when you see them get up and an actor hasn't got in your brain, doesn't know what you're trying to get at, how, how do you yeah. know what's going to work? Um, well, it's funny, so some, again, lots of actors bring things, they surprise you, and they find jokes that weren't there, and that's a joy. Um, I mean, Garn and Davis specifically, Ralph Little was incredible for it, the way he did some lines, like, he had a line in, in Foiled that was, um, can you pass my Hessian tote? <laughs> Which was relatively amusing, because Hessian tote's quite, quite a funny couple of words, but the way he said it was genius what he'd what he'd found in that you know and he's a real pro same as Felicity Montague you watch those pros in comedy acting and you're like oh they've really they've nailed this um so a really good actor a good comedy actor will find laughs that aren't even there and that's a joy and they'll know how to sell the ones that are there sometimes I write a joke and I just know it's a banger and I'm like if that doesn't land, that's on you because that's a brilliant joke. Because <laughs> I'm like, um, I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's if I'm taking the day off because sometimes you write something and you're like, there's no way that's not funny. Um, sometimes you have risky ones where you go, <laughs> what my producer wrote is so savage. I adore him, but it was savage. Um, he wrote, I'd written this joke, I cannot remember what it was, but I'm sure I could, my writing partner probably would have saved it. Um, so he put, What's this? next to this joke I'd written and I said well a joke and he put not for me <laughs> so I was like all right okay fair enough and then we said it he said oh you know he said oh by the way when I say that he said don't feel you have to take things out because I've said it he was like just you know you can still run with the joke I'll just take it out in the edit <laughs> um funny so some you don't know if they're gonna land or not and then sometimes something doesn't land because it wasn't delivered right. The pause wasn't there. The beat wasn't there. It wasn't sold in the right way. And that can be really frustrating if you can't get it back. Um, with our Ours were live recordings of the radio series. So I just earmarked those. Obviously, I was in it as well. So it's hard, but sometimes I'll be like, oh, no, 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 they said that wrong. And I'd like earmark it in the script and we'd go and do a pickup and you'd explain to somebody, okay, this is, you know, this is what the joke is. Can it? Can you find something that's a bit more like this in the delivery? Um, so, yeah, sometimes you're not sure. Sometimes it's, it's astonishing that people can really kill a, a joke sometimes. Um, but then on the flip side of that, like I said, they'll find jokes that aren't there. There's there's so much in, again, it's knowing the material and, like, being rigorous. I'm writing with and for a um, an incredible performer at the moment called Tori Scott. She's a comedian and cabaret singer um and I started working with her a year or so ago but I'd supported and seen her work for years my friends she she's moved to the UK now she was in the share show last year um and so she lived in New York for years she'd come over to the UK and do shows and I thought she was fabulous um we ended up collaborating and 
there were some jokes that I wrote for this show we've just done, which we're going to do a couple more times before Christmas, actually, because it's a work in progress. So I'll be putting on my Instagram about that because everybody needs to see it. It's, it's, she's so good. Her voice, her singing voice is insane. Um, and she's just really funny. And so I know her voice as well. So I learned, I'm quite good at writing for other people's voices because I've had practice with it, you know, with people like Alyssa Edwards and, you know, like you, I can watch people listen to them and go, oh, okay, yeah, I know that vibe. Um, so Tori did this bit. So there were a couple of jokes where I was like, I oh, just know they're going to, you just know they're going to land and it's exciting because you're like, there's no way that's not going to, to work. Um, and then there was this bit where she's talking about, because um, she's uh, we're both single for single child free women right and how we're talking about how much that offends society and lots of men um specifically fox news american men um who you know and we've got all these bits of them doing rants about you know their depressed cat ladies and their you know um on antidepressants and they're miserable and they're you know uh, lonely and all of this stuff just like attacking them and um he's like oh, they go from partner to partner and you know anyway so then Tori goes into a song and then afterwards she's talking as girls just want to have fun and then she's talking about uh sort of well I'm I'm not that I'm not any of that I don't recognize that I'm not any of those things and we were trying to find a good kind of way to counteract it um, and I was like, uh, I don't know if it needs it. Anyway, we went on this journey of, you know, back and forth trying things. And we were essentially saying how fun going to par from partner to partner is. Like, why is that a bad thing? She's like, I actually quite enjoy going from partner to partner. But it just sounded really on the nose and probably wasn't going to get a laugh necessarily. And what were we trying to say and whatever. Anyway, we didn't back reference it. I was like, by your existence and everything you're talking about, we know who you are and that you're not lonely and miserable and that you're enjoying dating and whatever, right? Um, but she found in the moment while on stage live, uh, she said that she was doing the Fox News bit and lonely, miserable cat lady, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, go from partner to partner. And this is a podcast so people can't see, but she like raised her eyebrows and smiled in a way to acknowledge and tell the audience, like, doesn't that sound fun? Oh, the laugh it got. So she used, she just, because we'd mined that and talked about that so rigorously and couldn't necessarily get there in a way that worked in a scripted way, but we'd done that work, which then informed her doing an eyebrow raise and a little smile after saying these women go from partner to partner, her facial expression and the way she sold it, I was like, oh, chef's kiss. And it got such a big laugh. And I was like, we couldn't have found that until you put her in the moment with that adrenaline and with the music and with everything happening. So I think, and this is a big reason why I still do live comedy, because I always think of it like um, my brother used to box and uh, he did junior Commonwealth and stuff. And then he was... Um, he, he didn't carry it on after that for lots of reasons, which isn't for this podcast. That's a sports podcast. But um, he used to talk about uh, the difference between sparring and being in the ring. And nothing, nothing can prepare you for being in the ring. And I think when you're doing live comedy, even putting videos out there, it's nothing like 
being with an audience because that that energy and that adrenaline and feeling in the moment what people are enjoying what you can leave a bit more of a beat on how you can play with delivery what you can lean into you don't get it until you're on stage um likewise if you you know just wanted to write comedy you sit there you work with performers and you feel it so I was sat in the audience and I'm like noting things and registering okay, we can do a bit more with that. We can, you know, it's it's a risk because you, you're also, I get terrified because I'm like, I've written stuff that Tori could get up and no one might laugh, but that's the risk you take. And that's the reward. The payoff is so good because it it's hard and it's scary. Um, nothing comes easy. So yeah, I think getting that reaction, it's so instant with comedy um, because someone's either going to laugh or they're not. And that's, that's yeah scary how do you recover if if it doesn't land if you have a really bad first show or any show really and how do you get up and carry on do you keep trying do you scramble in your head for new material like what what kind of thing do you do if you know the jokes aren't landing the way you thought they were gonna well it's a great question um I have a bit of a rule where if something hasn't landed three times with an audience, because sometimes it can just not land on the night, and sometimes it'll be delivery. I write with this stand-up who, uh, he had done a gig, and we'd worked on this bit, and he was like, oh, that didn't go for anything, that bit. And I was like, really? I was like, that really surprises me. So we listen back, because I always get, I write for people, if I can't be at a gig, I get them to send me the recording. So I listen to it. I was like, that's because you didn't set it up properly. I was like, go and do it again. And I was like, I told you. I was like, you need it. He rushed through the setup. He left a bit out. And then he did the punchline too quickly because he panicked and then it didn't go. And I was like, that's why it didn't go. You have to do it again. Um, so I think um, you learn more from your mistakes. So you've got to kind of embrace it. And it's brutal. But again, when they go well, that's why the reward is so great. Uh, so you just have to go, right, what have I learned from that? Lots of people do get into blaming audiences, which is a really, like, dodgy territory. I think sometimes you'll have an audience that doesn't like you or go for your stuff particularly, but that's why I have my rule of three. So um, I might say, okay, let's, let, you know, sometimes if it goes one gig, because I might be like, oh, they laughed at loads of other stuff, but they didn't laugh at that, so maybe that isn't strong enough that has to go or I might go can we try it one more time and just flip something in it or just change the delivery slightly um I did an Edinburgh show uh and usually your guts right if you know you're good at comedy you know you're a funny person you know you've written funny stuff before listen to your gut if you know something isn't good enough and we've all done it you go oh that'll do you throw something in there you're trying to find something and you go oh that'll do no it won't like just have like have your standards so high and just go would I honestly is that funny would I honestly laugh if I saw that on stage or on telly or someone made that joke would that make me laugh if it if it wouldn't don't do it um I think that yeah um what's I gonna say my ADHD and my brain pinging around different places but yeah I think so learning from those mistakes, going, that might not be funny enough. That was it. This Edinburgh show I did, it was a sketch show in 2015 called Flick and Julie's Pop-Up Penny Pinchers. I was incredibly proud of it. It was my first uh, full Edinburgh ever uh, with a sketch partner. And um, there was so much great stuff in that show. But our intro was just never funny enough. 
And I knew it wasn't, but we were like, that'll do with it. But I'm like, that's mad because that's this, the first line's got to tell you everything you need to know. It's got to be a banger, um, which is a lot of pressure, but you've got, you don't have to win them back. It, we were two unknowns. We were already having to do a lot of work, you know? Anyway, it was a third Edinburgh in. And a lot of our previews had been really friendly audiences who were, you know, people that we knew and we were just doing little sections and using the best stuff. Um, and, you know, I'd write an intro bit that would be about the place we were in, which was sort of off the cuff. So this was our Edinburgh doing this sketch show. And it was the third. Oh, I couldn't sleep. I was like, Gemma, nobody's laughing at that first bit. They're just not. And I feel sick. I was like, it's just it's stopping me because it, it's supposed to be a joke and it's not landing and I cannot get on stage one more day and say that or do that. I'm just not doing it because it it obviously doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, I said, can we please just try If I write something else, can we just try something else? So we tried a couple of different things and we found the thing that ended up working and got a laugh straight away. Um, so I think be prepared to change stuff and drop stuff if it's a couple of times and it hasn't landed. And then, like, it's about investment. You have to pay somebody to direct you, watch you, write with you, script consult. Like Tori now, you know, she's like, I can't believe I went all these years without a writer. I can't believe everyone had writers and I didn't and I didn't know and I never even thought about it and I was just getting up and doing it and not having, you know, proper like punchlines or things coming back or structure to certain bits. She had lots, lots of, you know, great stuff, but uh, yeah, she was like, this is such a joy, just not doing it on your own. And I think, you know, it depends what financial situation you're in, I think. But investment in your career is so important in getting better, getting people you really trust that give loads of a shit about you and you being people that won't just say, oh, yeah, that's great about everything. Um remove yourself from the work you know I, it's really vulnerable but look at it objectively because I'm like the last thing I want is anyone getting on stage and not feeling comfortable or it not being funny like I need people to tell me if something's not funny I'm like is this good enough a comic said to me recently I sent him a screenshot of this bit of a my script and um I said this is really bothering me and it's page one and I said it's just not funny enough like I've gone back to it and it's not and he said well he said, look, it's a good line. It is funny. He said, I get why you think that, though. And he said, we do have high standards. He's a really successful comic um, and brilliant writer. And he was like, yeah, he said, maybe you might want to go more down the route of this and gave me some options, um, which was really helpful. And he's a comic that I've sort of followed and liked his work since he had a thousand followers. And now he's got loads of followers. But because I liked his work and we became friends and stayed in touch and I supported his stuff. You build this creative network around you of people you can go to. So it can be Skillshare. Um, you know, some, I have some people where we just look at each other's scripts and no money changes hands, but it, it has to be even flow, which it is, you know, people work at certain levels, but always in the past, it would be friends who I know are funny and, you know, my parents, like, are great with comedy. And we'd sit around, we'd have a glass of wine, we'd read through stuff. Um, and I'd be like, is this funny enough? Is this good enough? And it's finding the right people around you that will help you interrogate that and really care. But people are funny. They have to understand enough about comedy to comment. But if it was just me starting up doing stand-up now and I didn't have those connections and whatever, I would be paying somebody. 
and I, you know, be doing one of those stand-up courses where you get that network around you because you just can't do it on your own. Nobody does it on their own. Um, lots of people make out they do or pretend they do or don't talk about the extra directing, writing, help that they get and collaborations that they have, but it's everyone has it. So all of those things, if you have a bad gig, having that network to lean on and that support system and that access to work um that can be done on things is essential absolutely and I think creative networks are so important because like you say you can't do this especially in the creative industry I feel like it's so hard to try and do it on your own like accept help and reach out to help and support other people because if you genuinely support other people good things do come back to you from it always 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 like the amount of stuff I've got from connections I made in, you know, Edinburgh 2015 and earlier in my career and going to see people supporting them when nobody else is in their audience and taking friends and being a generous laugher and sharing their things. It costs you nothing. Like don't share stuff that you think is awful. Like I get asked to share stuff sometimes and I'm like, no, um, because that's people, that's, people will think I think that's funny and unfortunately I can't do that um but it's finding those people that you think are good it's not just blindly supporting everybody but go and see lots of work all the time support people and then you think people are really good they will be potentially future collaborators or people that will support your work and get you in for stuff I think so many people talking of mistakes are so obsessed with their own journey and I get it but they're all about their videos and everything they're sharing and everything. And it's like, look, if you don't like and comment and share on stuff that you like and people that you admire and respect, if you're not supporting their work, how can you expect to get that back? And you don't do it so that it comes back, but you do it in an authentic way. Again, when I've liked people's work and I've championed them, I've gone to see someone's Edinburgh show where there's two people there and I'll spend the rest of Edinburgh going, please go and see that show. It's brilliant. While I'm promoting my own show because it costs me nothing extra um and I think so many more people need to do that they they save their social media and their networks for their stuff and it's like nah you've you've got to be generous with that with that stuff you know and um it will very often come back to you and again don't just blindly do it it's really supporting those people that you think oh their work's great um, or you just see some potential, you see something in them and then, you know, who knows what will come from it in the future. But it makes you feel good as well. It's like giving to charity, you know. You feel good if you share people's stuff and you're generous and you're kind. And then if you see someone's stuff and you don't like it, that's fine. You don't have to – it doesn't hurt you to like something still if you know someone and you want to support them. But, you know, um, I think just putting like as much – not to sound like a – cheesy Instagram quote but just putting as much like generosity and kindness out there as possible because this is really tough and nobody's really putting something out there that they think is awful they've thought that's good they've worked on that and so you know give each other a break like <laughs> absolutely I love that and I love that you promote that as well because I think it's such an important message like I think you know people when they're starting out they promote kindness a lot and then I feel like sometimes it gets lost as we go up the ranks and it it's there more than ever and we just need to embrace it and show people that are coming up that it's still needed yeah yeah so much 
So with writing, when your job is to be creative for a living, how do you balance that with discipline and being like, right, I've got this deadline, I've got to get it done in those moments where maybe you aren't inspired or you don't have particular material that's just like in your head and ready to go? What what do you do? Um, I take Elevance medication for ADHD <laughs> and that removes my constant need to seek dopamine from elsewhere, from my phone or eating or tidying something to get those quick hits so like since I've been taking ADHD medication that's been really easy otherwise if I'm really honest it was just chaos I just wouldn't and I'd work right up you know I would leave it till I was really stressed and it's last minute and I'm up all night writing and I'd have those moments where I'd be really inspired and get excited and be really creative and I'd sit down and I'd do it and then like you say when it's not coming it's not coming it's incredibly stressful and it's overwhelming um I think again use people around you don't sit there and panic on your own you know have a conversation with somebody talk out ideas try and write something and I go in when I'm in that stage of like oh god I don't know you know especially there's some sketches where there's one coming up at the moment where you know I'll have to submit probably about seven to ten sketches and that's overwhelming the thought of that I'm like what if I can't think of anything funny um where will I get ideas from? And then sometimes I'll write something and I'll, I'll start writing it going, I'll delete this afterwards. I just need to have written something. I need to have tried something. I'll just write a sketch about someone at a bus stop. I don't know, like just remove the stress of having to make it brilliant and just write something down. Talk about an idea with somebody. I remember um, talking to a friend of mine um, you might have read this sketch, I don't know, actually, but I was chatting to her and she was like, oh, how's things in London? She lives back here. And we were just chatting on WhatsApp and we were like voice noting back and forth. And I said to her, I was like, well, I'm supposed to be writing. I've got another four sketches to write and I've got no ideas and I'm just lying on the sofa, like in, in despair, just eating lint bunnies, you know, those little lint bunnies. Um and I was like, I, I can't, I can't face it. Like my laptop's in the other room. I just, I can't think of anything. And um, and she was like, oh, mate, well, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about, and she's not a comedy writer, you know, but she was engaged enough and she's a good friend and she cared and she started throwing ideas at me. Well, that conversation led me to two of one sketch, which is probably one of the best sketches I think I've ever written. Um how the hell did she get me there? I can't, I can't remember how she got me there for this one, but it ended up being a sketch in a, a wedding dress shop, a woman who actively encourages women not to get married, um, who come in to try on wedding dresses. I can't remember what she said. It was an advert for something in a bridal shop that she'd sent me or whatever, and I just started thinking about bridal shops. And then, oh, yeah, because we were talking about marriage, and I was like, look, I don't know if I subscribe to marriage. It works out way worse for women than it does men. Like, you know, single, child-free women on the scale are always the happiest, and women a lot of the time end up sort of looking after men. It, marriage doesn't always work very well for women. So we were sort of talking about that. Something about a bridal shop, then that, and she's not married. Um and that got me onto writing a, a sketch about a woman who had a bridal shop that, yeah, sort of encouraged women not to get married. But then the other one, then she started talking about this awful guy she'd been dating. Um, 
and I'd not met him, but I knew someone else who'd met him and said he was awful. She won't mind me saying this. And um, she was like, oh, God, he's just... And so she said, oh, how it ended was his ex phoned me and just said, look, I've got hold of your number. He's he's a psychopath. Um, I dated him, and you need to know this, this, and this about him. And loads of stuff really resonated. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was like, that's great that she did that. And it sort of made her go, okay, yeah, and end it with this guy. Um, so that then got me onto, I was like, oh, imagine there was like a reference service. I was like, we should all be able to access people's exes. Imagine there was a reference service for dating where you could go back and be like, hi, I'm thinking about dating this guy. What's, you know, and then being like, oh, well, this is where it went wrong. They are really nice and that's great. But this was, this was a bit rubbish. And this was, so then I wrote a sketch about somebody essentially doing a service of just that where they're building up a network of people of dated people and they give references about them uh so i think just talk about it don't internalize it in your head lean into a friend or family member or someone you could have a conversation with and just be like right i want to write something or i want to write this what could be good talk ideas out and even if they say something that's not remotely helpful it will spark you onto something else and i see conversations with friends and socializing as generative exercises a lot of the time when you when you go out and you have experiences and you watch stuff and you meet friends and you experience joy if that's making breakfast for somebody or whatever the more you do the more likely you are to get creative inspiration and be able to talk about ideas you might tell a story something that's just happened to you and somebody laughs and you go oh maybe there's something in that um so do the opposite of sit in like go out um spend time with people socialize that's where story is it's with people you know so yeah does that make sense that was absolutely long. and both of those sketches are phenomenal so I can't believe you're having like a block at that point because I love both of those sketches oh thanks yeah I enjoyed those it's funny that they came out of that conversation with someone who works not remotely in comedy but yeah yeah, they're brilliant ideas and I really loved I loved doing those sketches. Um, so what advice would you give to a writer or someone who is attempting their first piece of comedy writing? What would your advice be to them? Well, I think um, basically off the back of what I've just said, just use inspiration for what from what's around you. You know, if you look at comedians like Alistair Green, who, you know, is just like the best satirist of our time, which he'd probably hate to hear me say that. But um, people who are doing everyday little stories about characters that are recognisable, everyday situations, tune into observations of things. Sometimes I might make a comment or observation on a system or a way something works or whatever. And if the person I'm with, if I say that and they laugh, I might then put it on my Instagram story and then people will, they'll, you know, something, some things get loads of responses and then some things I'm like, oh, actually, I thought that was funny, but not many people did. Um, so I think always just draw on, don't look too far past your front doorstep, you know, look at, and, and most people who work in comedy, they got there because they make their mates laugh in the pub and they make their family members laugh. It's astonishing sometimes when people go into stand-up. And it's really funny when you're like, you've never made me laugh. Like, you're the least funny person. What made you think? 
to not I don't mean this in a horrible way but it's really funny when people just aren't funny and then they choose comedy I guess sometimes it works but if you told a story that particularly made people laugh people engaged with something that happened to you or an anecdote about somebody else use it think how you can use it and then again there are more like generative exercises you can do past that to try and go oh what happens if I put someone from the mafia in a sewing shop try and meet opposing worlds like try and juxtapose stuff um create unique um contexts for characters that might not be there that might lead you onto something funny again it might not but there's no harm in sort of doing it so I think yeah um start with what you know and yeah try out your material on everyone not in an annoying way in the pub don't do bits at people um but yeah go with all of the reasons you want to create something funny in the first place what success have you had in comedy so far and by success in comedy I genuinely mean telling a funny story in the pub or sorry I'm being very like drink focused here coffee shop living room whatever it doesn't have to be a pub (laughs) Beth your advice has been amazing and this podcast genuinely I feel like it's going to help so many people when they listen to this so thank you so much for your incredible advice for those people who are listening who want to keep up to date with your hilarious Instagram stories or where you are and what you're up to how can they do that um well, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Beth.Granville. Um, I'm on Twitter, but since it became X, Elon Musk, I don't really bother with it so much now, but I am there. Um, I have a website, which is just BethGranville.com. And yeah, if anyone's just interested in, well, either I do one-on-one script consultation. I write for people. I, I collaborate with lots of people in lots of different ways. So if people are interested in that, it's through my website or uh, Instagram and yeah I have a mailing list where I'm just finding my feet with it really I've only sent out two things um but I'm gonna use it to give bits of advice and connect with people and let people know about courses I'm doing so yeah I guess website sign up for the mailing list hit me up on Instagram amazing I'll put all those links in the show notes of this episode below so if you are struggling and don't know where you can find Beth don't panic it's all in the show notes below before we go um what do you hope listeners take away from this episode um gosh I don't know um probably just to I hope that people would go away and feel less overwhelmed than they might before if somebody's starting a journey of comedy writing um I would hope that I've made it seem more accessible than it might have before because you it's a very much where would I start thing so hopefully we're all just finding our feet we're all just trying to come up with the next idea and write the next funny thing and create those characters so uh, your perspective is unique um, we're all just, we're all so different. We all see, experience and see the world in completely different ways. So tap into your way and um, use what's around you and just create organically without thinking too much about an end game because the best stuff always comes when you're just creating for the joy of it. So do that and yeah. 
Beth, thank you so much for your time. It's been incredible to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you for having me and letting me talk relentlessly for an hour. <laughs> All of it has been so helpful, though. There wasn't a part of that that like, I didn't feel like was helping or educating. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks. And thank you to everyone listening at home. This has been Perform Talks, and I've been your host, Bethany Unwin. Yeah.